You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 158 by Rudolf Steiner, entitled Our Connection with the Elemental World. This is Lecture 5, translated by Simon Blacksland DeLang, given in Dornach on the 21st of November, 1914. In a lecture that I gave in relation to the Kalevala, I said something that you will have found somewhat perplexing. Once you had thought this lecture through, you would most likely have said that I had been talking about a being that stretches from west to east, with three further extensions, or limbs, which the ancient Finnish people experienced as Vainamoinen, Ilmarinen, and Lemminkainen and which today, in our materialistic language, we call the gulfs of Riga, Finland, and Bothnia. However, you might well have wondered what this has to do with the being, since it is merely a surface, the surface of the sea together with its extensions. It does not have a bodily nature at all. So why had I been speaking about such a being? Your thoughts will have been along these lines. It is quite typical that a spiritual scientific truth gives rise to thoughts such as these. For it happens again and again that truths which come from the spiritual world evoke challenges. It is absolutely right and significant that people make such protests. And the only way of dealing with issues such as these is that one makes a deeper study of the matter in question. I want to do this today with respect to certain problems of spiritual knowledge. However, I need to preface this with some introductory remarks. We shall, to begin with, briefly consider the materialistic prejudices of our time regarding the nature of man. Thus, for example, there is the very understandable prejudice that a number of physical processes take place in man's being, including those in his nervous system and brain, and that these physical processes are accompanied by soul processes, which, for the materialist, are merely the expression of these physical processes. The materialist studies what is going on in the human body, discerns or presupposes hypothetically certain finely tuned nerve processes and claims that they are the basis for all processes of thinking, feeling and will that these soul processes are merely the concomitants of what is happening physically. This is a widely held view today, and there is no doubt that it will become even more firmly established through the materialistic thinking of modern times. But it is about as clever as the following scenario, which is a logical extension of it. Let us suppose that someone who is going for a walk finds tracks on the path, some of which are parallel, ruts, and others that look like feet. He then ponders and says to himself, Now then, the substance of which this path is formed has undergone some changes, as a result of which it has gradually become compressed and formed these ruts. And in certain places it has subsided, 
thus forming impressions that resemble footprints. Of course, this is absolute nonsense, for what actually happened was that a cart came along here and made these ruts with its wheels, and this is where someone was walking and left these footprints. It was not the ground that was responsible for these tracks, but the human being with his feet and the cart with its wheels. It is a similar situation with the processes in our nervous system. Whenever we are inwardly active in thinking, feeling, and willing, we are engaged in processes of a soul-spiritual nature. For as long as we are living in the physical world, these are enacted in conjunction with the physical body, just as the cart makes its way along the path and the human being walks along it, leaving their tracks behind. These traces that they leave behind have just as little to do with physical substance as the tracks on the footpath have to do with the substance of the ground. The processes taking place in the substance of the brain, in the nervous system, actually have absolutely nothing to do with thought processes, and indeed no more than the effect of what the cart and human being have done has to do with what is going on beneath the surface of the ground. It is highly important to take note of such things, for one then understands that an anatomist or physiologist who merely investigates processes in the organism is like a spirit being who moves about beneath the surface of the earth but never comes above it and has never seen people or carts. He only sees from the earthly perspective that there are unevennesses in the earth's surface but never comes to view them from the other side. In this limited way, he then makes an investigation and believes that the earth itself is responsible for this through its own activity. The moment such a spirit appears above the surface of the earth, he would become aware of the true state of affairs. The same is true of anatomists and physiologists working out of a materialistic background, for they are always under the earth's surface, which is to say, that they know nothing of spiritual science and hence inhabit a sub-earthly realm. They study merely the processes in the material world, which have nothing to do with what happens in the realm of soul and spirit. It will be a task for our time that people make the transition from this anatomical and physiological thinking to spiritual scientific thinking. They would then be like goblins who have hitherto only been beneath the earth's surface, and who, on being raised above it, would see how the tracks in the ground had actually been made. Materialistic scientists who concern themselves only with the sub-earthly spiritual domain, for even matter is spiritual, are actually like wild goblins, and humanity will have a great shock in store when these goblins or earth spirits make their appearance in the realm of soul and spirit. I needed to say these introductory words because I want to give you some kind of explanation of the anomaly referred to earlier, that the gulfs of Bothnia, Finland and Riga, which are indeed level surfaces or plains, were described as the essential nature or attributes of a mighty being stretching from west to east. Now, we think of ourselves, do we not, 
as spatial beings, beings of space. But we are not really the kind of spatial beings that we consider ourselves to be, for man is actually a different being from the one whom we behold only in the maya of illusion, in the phantasmagoria of outward appearance. We do indeed perceive him as a being who manifests himself in space and is spatially enclosed within his skin. But there are actually three significant riddles or questions that lie concealed within the frame of the human form. The first of these riddles is hidden behind all sorts of puzzling and mystifying illusions. We are indeed deceived about our own existence by the outward maya of a world of imaginary pictures. The traces of this deception can be found in modern science, particularly where science is completely at a loss and has to resort to all sorts of hypotheses. The riddle or question to which I refer is concealed behind scientific explanations or hypotheses as to why people have two eyes and two ears and yet do not see or hear double, why these organs are arranged symmetrically so that there are two of them rather than one. Merely to perceive this represents a profound problem or question for science. And if you study the relevant literature, you will find everything that has been written about this question of why we see with two eyes and hear with two ears. From a certain point of view, man is very coarsely organized, and this sometimes comes to expression in the way he speaks. He actually also has two noses, although they have grown together to the extent that they cannot be discerned so readily as the two eyes and the two ears. Hence we do not speak of having two noses, but rather one nose, even though in reality a person has two noses and not one. However, man is so coarsely organized that where something has grown together this cannot be noticed. Nevertheless, it is in any case a fact that in one's perception of human nature there is a total symmetry between left and right. If we did not have two ears, two eyes, and two noses, we would not have an experience of our ego. We also need two hands for this. When we clap our hands and feel one hand against the other, we have a sense of our own ego. We also do something similar when we combine what our two eyes or ears have perceived into a unity. We always perceive the world from two sides, from the left and from the right, whenever we perceive anything with our senses. And it is only because we perceive everything from these two directions and bring these images to a point of intersection that we possess our ego nature as human beings. Otherwise this would not be the case. If, for example, our eyes were in the vicinity of our ears and we were unable to combine the lines of vision, we would always remain beings who are imprisoned in a group soul. In order to be ego beings, we have to bring left and right to a focal point. We bring everything that we perceive from left and right to a point of intersection in the middle. Imagine a flat surface extending outward from this vertical line on the blackboard. Everything comes to this line of intersection from both left and right, and we are actually in this plane. 
We are not in space, but in this plane, within this surface. We are, as human beings, not really extended in space. We are surface beings, on the grounds that impulses coming from left and right are intersecting in us. And if you want to give a real answer as opposed to one enshrouded in Maya, to the question as to where you really are, you should not say that you are in whatever space that your body occupies, but rather that you are wherever your left and right dimensions intersect. You are actually there and there only. Just as the being to whom I referred previously has surfaces where its airy and watery halves meet, and here the two halves are different, so in man there are two similar halves of right and left. But man is also a surface being, a plane, and it is Maya that we see him as having an actual form. So where does this actual form come from? He has it because he is in the midst of a kind of battle. A being from the left is fighting with a being coming from the right. If we were to perceive spiritually the nature of this being on the left, we would perceive it as light, whereas a spiritual perception of the being active on our right side would make us aware that it has other qualities. The twofold nature of our being arises from the fact that the being of Lucifer is fighting within us from the left and the being of Araman from the right. In order to form a clear picture of this, we need to think of the Luciferic being waging his battle from the left, where he builds up his fortifications, while the Aramanic being engages in similar exploits from the right. The left aspect of your being is the fortification established by Lucifer, whereas the right aspect of your being consists of the fortifications of Araman. All that it is possible for you to do is to stand in the middle. The art of life consists in finding the right balance between them. We do this unconsciously when we perceive with our senses. When we hear with our left ear and with our right ear and then unite the impulses that reach us in this way into a single perception, or when we feel something with our left hand and with our right hand and unite the two perceptions, we are always establishing ourselves in the surface that lies on the boundary of the battle between Lucifer and Araman. The space that is left to us in the middle is as narrow as, or even narrower than, the blade of a knife. Our organism does not belong to us, but is the legacy of the battle between the Luciferic and Aramanic powers and also other powers that are of a similar nature to Lucifer and Araman. However, this is an area that will not be investigated further at present. Thus, as surface beings, we are wedged between entities that do not concern us directly as human beings. The left aspect of our being does not concern us, nor does its right aspect. There is only the process that takes place between them. And now you can develop further the picture that I presented earlier. You see, there is a continuous stream of processes going on within the earth. But what happens within the earth does not make these tracks. Similarly, what happens within you 
in the left or right half of your organism has absolutely nothing to do with what you experience within your soul. For these are processes that take place between Lucifer and Araman. What goes on beneath the earth's surface, everything that happens there, worms creeping about, the seasonal alternations between warmth and cold, has nothing to do with the tracks that left their impressions. And it is these tracks that are comparable with what goes on within the human organism. We should therefore say that spiritual observation of physiological and anatomical processes reveals to us the battle that Lucifer and Araman are waging within us. But we must not suppose that our soul life is the result of these processes involving Lucifer and Araman. That would be an incorrect conclusion. For our soul life is enacted within the soul itself. Moreover, it is enacted in the surface, in the plane, not in the spatial organism. Now, there are different stages in the working of Lucifer and Araman in the human organism, and it is very interesting to study these. With regard to the human head, we find that Lucifer and Araman have built up roughly equal fortifications on its left and right sides. The left and right halves of the head are very similar, and their forces are such that little intermingling is possible between them, with the result that they have little effect upon the surface in the middle. At this mid-point is the surface. Lucifer is on the left and Araman on the right, but because the left and the right halves of the head are formed in so similar a way, Lucifer and Araman rebound from one another, and so man is able to develop a calm inner activity, and there's a drawing. His thinking is very little disturbed by the influences of Lucifer and Araman, because in the head they mutually repel one another. If one considers the lower regions of the human form, this is no longer the case. On one side Lucifer manages to enhance the stomach, while on the other side Araman enhances the liver. The stomach is the means whereby Lucifer wages his battle from left to right, while the liver is Araman's means of battling from right to left. The relationship between the stomach and the liver can be rightly understood if one bears in mind that Lucifer manages to build up the stomach as a kind of weapon whereas Araman does something similar with the liver. These organs are in a state of perpetual battle, and scientists would do well to study this battle between the stomach and the liver. And if the heart has a tendency to be somewhat over toward the left, this is an expression of Lucifer's desire to seize something for himself, as does Araman on the other side. The whole left-right relationship manifests the way in which Lucifer and Araman wage their battle within man, even though from man's point of view what lies on either side of the central surface is in a certain sense alike. But we have already seen that this is only true of the upper part, for the two sides cease to be alike as we follow the human form in a downward direction. In the case of the being of whom I spoke previously with three outstretched feelers or tentacles associated with Lemminkainen, Ilmerinen, and Vainamoinen, the one half is air and the other half is water, 
And so here the two halves are quite different. But once one has attained knowledge of a clairvoyant nature, it becomes clear that man is actually also a surface between two distinct halves. For as soon as one is no longer thinking of the physical body and is focusing on the ether body, one finds that the left half becomes significantly lighter than the right half. The left half half shines, glistens, and glimmers with radiant light, whereas the right half is overshadowed with darkness. This is how it actually is with the left and right aspects of man's being. There are, however, other orientations associated with man's relationship to space, or, to express this in occult terms, to the battle between Lucifer and Araman. Thus he has a forward and a backward orientation, looking in front and behind. If instead of observing man in terms of left and right, we think of him as having a forward and a backward orientation, and we need to include the whole human form, we find that also in this orientation he is not the spatial being that he appears to be. For just as Lucifer and Araman engage in combat in the left-to-right dimension, with the spatial aspect merely representing the barricades that they erect against one another, so does Araman fight against man from behind and Lucifer from in front. Araman mobilizes his activity from a backward direction, while Lucifer manifests his activity from in front, in opposition to Araman. Man stands in the middle between them. It should, however, be noted that as regards this forward-backward orientation, Lucifer and Araman do not succeed in coming so close to one another that they form no more than a surface between them. The situation is somewhat different here. Araman comes only as far as the plane extending through the spinal column, while Lucifer comes as far as the plane through the breastbone, where the ribs meet. In between these two planes lies a space which separates them, where the influences of Lucifer and Araman are thrown into confusion. It is a region where they battle without encountering one another directly sending their missiles through the intervening space. Thus Araman can reach only as far as the spinal column and Lucifer to where the ribs meet the breastbone, while we stand in the midst of this fight between Lucifer and Araman. Thus, with respect to the forward-backward orientation, we are a being that has space, while with respect to left and right, we have no space. In the left-right orientation, Lucifer and Araman battle mainly through thoughts. Thoughts buzz around from left and from right and meet in the surface or plane in the middle. These are the thoughts of a cosmic nature, which knock up against one another and come together at the human surface in the middle. In the forward-backward orientation, Lucifer and Araman do battle more with feelings, and because their forces do not approach one another so completely, there is a space in the middle where we can dwell inwardly with our own feelings. When we have thoughts that engage in mutual combat from left and right, we feel that these thoughts belong to the world. When thoughts come to us, we think of things that are outside. When we form our own thoughts, they are a mere phantasmagoria, 
an imaginary world that no longer belongs to the actual world. In our feelings, we belong to ourselves. Because Lucifer and Araman do not encounter one another completely, and we therefore have scope to play with between the two areas. This is why we are so fully within ourselves in our feelings. You see, as human beings, we have been created by the influences of beings of the higher hierarchies, and we are surface beings in a left-right dimension because the higher hierarchies have so formed us as human beings. They do not allow Lucifer and Arman to come together here. We are creatures of the good gods, inasmuch as these good gods have decreed out of their creative thoughts that in the light of the battle that is going on between Lucifer and Araman, a boundary must be established to enclose a region into which they cannot enter, where they will be unable to come together. We human beings have been placed into the midst of this battle as creatures of the good gods. And the more we stand our ground in this battle, the more we are creatures of the good gods. With respect to the forward and backward dimension, the good gods do not wholly allow Lucifer to enter into us. They have created a barricade where the ribs meet in the breastbone. And by forming this wonderful tower that encloses the spine and the brain, the good gods have established a fortification against Araman. He cannot pass by there. And the most he can do is to send the arrows of his feelings across to Lucifer. This is the place where we have the scope to keep them apart from one another. There is also a third dimension, from above to below. Here, too, we need to understand that the true state of affairs is not as it appears to be in the world of outward semblance, or maya. For Araman works from below upward and Lucifer from above downward. Here, too, the good gods have established a barrier against Lucifer, in that his influences coming from above are, as it were, resisted by a plane. You can find this plane by taking a skeleton and removing the skull from it. Where the skull rests on the cervical vertebra, you need to imagine a planar surface. This invisible horizontal plane where the skull rests on the cervical vertebra is the barrier. When a person makes this his focus, he can resist the Luciferic influences coming from above. Lucifer can only shoot his arrows from above, these arrows now being will impulses. From left to right fly arrows of thought, from in front to behind arrows of feeling, and from above downward and also from below upward arrows of will. Here, too, we have a certain amount of scope, for approximately in line with the diaphragm, there is a plane that has been established as a barricade against the upward pressure of Araman. Thus Araman can only reach the diaphragm in his upward movement and cannot reach any further with his will, with his missiles of will, with his essential being. Above this is our own field of action. So you see how complicated man is. Take any part of the human form, for example the left side of the face. As a being of thought, Lucifer can completely pervade this left side of the human countenance. And as a being of feeling, 
he can penetrate it to a certain point. Finally, as a being of will, he can imbue it with his forces from above downward. Thus, in this way, you can discover for every part of the human organism how Lucifer and Araman are active within man as a spatial being through cosmic impulses of thought, feeling, and will. Bearing in mind that in our thoughts we are actually surface beings, in our feelings we have a certain free space between in front and behind, and in our will we have such a space between above and below, between the plane through the upper part of the cervical vertebra and the plane through the diaphragm. Only if you separate out what does not belong to man at all will you arrive at a true picture of the human form, and you can then construct this for yourself. Thus you can see that the human form has been forged from without, that it receives its particular character from external forces, and that we are unable to understand it if we simply equate it with the forms that directly confront us. For we can understand it only if we know how it is connected with the entire spiritual cosmos, how luciferic and aramonic forces approach man from right and left, from below and above, and from before and behind, and how they give his being its particular character of a spatial being. This is also the way in which you should study something else that has been formed in accordance with the true cosmic influences in the world namely, our building. If you look at it merely in terms of its outward appearance, you might well think that the most important aspect of this building is the wooden structure that exists there in space. But that is not the case. Its most important aspect can be found where, apparently, nothing is present. If we take any one of its forms and consider the particular piece of wood, and there's a drawing, What matters here is not the wood itself, but where there is nothing, where air adjoins the wood. The way to arrive at a true picture of our building would be to take an enormous lump of wax and make an impression of the interior and then study it. What really matters is that you dwell within when you enter the building, something that you cannot see but need to feel. I once pointed out that the principle underlying our building is one of a, in quotes, Gugelhupf, cake tin. Imagine that you have such a mold, and there's a second drawing, and you bake a cake in it. What is the important thing about this whole operation? Clearly, it is not the cake tin, but the cake, which has thereby acquired its proper shape and has been baked as it should be. The mold's significance is purely so that pouring the cake mixture into it and then baking it enables one to produce the required form of cake. Similarly, what is important about our building is not its surroundings but what is inside it, and within its walls will be the feelings and thoughts of those who are in the building. These will arise through people directing their eyes to its extremities, feeling its forms, and filling themselves with thoughts. What is inside the building will be the gugelhupf, and what we build is the sheath, the form. But this has to be of such a kind that what is thought, felt, and experienced in it is right and true. This is the principle of modern art as opposed to older forms of art.
what used to matter about art was what is outwardly visible in space, whereas modern art has a different emphasis. What is outside is the containing vessel, whereas the part that really matters cannot be made by the artist, for it is what is within it. This does not only apply to sculptural or architectural forms, but also to painting. What matters is likewise not what is painted, but what is experienced in connection with it. The painting itself is merely the equivalent of a gugelhupf, cake tin. This, may I say, is the very essence of the step in evolution that we need to take. That we indeed, pardon the expression, make the transition from the cake tin to the cake. To remain in the containing vessel equates with materialism. Arriving at the cake itself means finding the spiritual science. And this is what we are working toward. If we are not aware of this, we shall not be able to evaluate our artistic endeavors in the right way. If our artistic conception of our building is in accordance with an older model, we may well say that we cannot see anything beautiful about it. But we would then be unaware that it is not the cake tin that matters, but the cake that is inside it. If we adopt this artistic principle, we will begin to understand the whole meaning and significance of the advance in evolution that spiritual science makes possible. Through spiritual science, man needs to make the transition from the mold within which the gugelhupf is baked to the gugelhupf itself. He must therefore free himself from the belief that, for example, the source of thoughts resides in brain processes, whereas, on the contrary, cosmic processes are at work in what goes on in the brain, and there is an ongoing battle between Lucifer and Araman and he must come to see that the thoughts and feelings of the human soul are simply the tracks that have been engraved into this battleground and have nothing to do with the so-called material processes, in other words, with the processes enacted by Lucifer and Araman. I should like to offer another picture. Let us suppose that we are entering a beautiful garden whose beauties can be attributed both to the arrangement of the trees and the layout of the flower beds, and we are wanting to form an opinion about it. If we were then to look down a hole in the earth, we might be approached by an elemental being who says to us, quote, I will tell you why all these roses and violets are growing here, why there is a bush in one place and flowers in another. I creep everywhere down there beneath the earth's surface and I see the soil that has enabled the trees, violets, and roses to spring forth. We might reply, quote, Yes, you describe these processes very well. This is the way that everything is bound to happen in the physical world. But in order that plants are able to thrive, this garden has been created, and for this a gardener was necessary. However, these are areas of which you have absolutely no knowledge, and with which you have never concerned yourself. So we must learn to say to materialistic anatomists and physiologists, quote, I find your activity only when I peep down into the earth. 
you creep around and study processes that necessarily take place. But they have nothing to do with what goes on in the soul-spiritual domain. Moreover, you will only be able rightly to interpret what happens down there when you endeavor to understand the relationships that exist between Lucifer and Araman on the one hand and the other hierarchies who bring Lucifer and Araman into a state of balance. Close quote. If this is achieved, what has hitherto been active only as an idea fostered from within the ego will be enriched by spiritual science. A time will come when people will say, quote, We are told in the biblical story of the creation of the breath of Jehovah that was breathed into man. Close quote. Then people of the future will ask, quote, But when this breath was inhaled, in what part of man was it received? Close quote. If you recall all that I have said, you will find that the immediate regions where this breath was breathed are these intermediate spaces where Jehovah created man as a kind of cube out of the dimensions extending from in front to behind and from above to below, and there's a drawing, and filled him with his own being, with his magical breath, in such a way that the influence of this magical breath was able to extend throughout the rest of his being into the regions dominated by Lucifer and Armon. Here, bounded on right and left, from above and below, and from forward and backward, is an intervening space where the breath of Jehovah enters directly into the spatial aspect of man's being. What I have been saying applies in the first instance to this physical spatial being of man. You will see that this liberates our outlook so that we can behold man as he stands within the entire cosmos. And indeed, there are also moral soul aspects of what outwardly appears in a purely spatial guise. For in these aspects too, even though not to so strong a degree as with man as a spatial being, we are initially confronted by a phantasmagoria of shifting images. In everything pertaining to morality and logic, in all of our soul activity, Lucifer and Araman are working in combination, while man stands on the boundary between them. We shall speak tomorrow about this highly important and significant subject. The end of Lecture 5